I know I left you on a little bit of a cliffhanger last week, right? And uh, hopefully you went home and figured out what happened. But uh, if you didn't, today we're going to put your minds at ease. We're going to finish that story of, of Samuel and Saul today. Um, if you need a copy of God's Word, feel free to shoot up your hand. We'd love to bring you a copy. Just so you know, we need one right here. There we go. Thank you, Teresa. Uh, just so you know, there's no shame. Um, I started back to seminary a couple weeks ago. And uh, I have a school bag and I have a church bag. And I keep uh, all my school books in one and all my church books in one. And somehow my Bible got switched. So guess where my school bag is? It's at home. So I had to raise my hand and get my own copy of God's Word. <clears throat> anyway, one of them days. There we go. All right. This week again, we're gonna we're gonna read the biblical narrative. So I uh, know I usually ask you to stand, but I want you to stay seated. I want you to follow along with me, either in your Bible or on the slides there. They're gonna move them forward for us as we go there. Uh, so let's let's dig into this. We're gonna be in 1 Samuel 10. 1 Samuel 10. As we're moving through the book there, and I'm actually gonna bounce back one verse because we kind of come in mid-thought there in verse 1. So uh, if you're following along your Bible, I'm going to start with 1 Samuel 9, 27. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you will remain standing now, that I may proclaim the word of God to you. Now we're in chapter 10. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? When you go from me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Now behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go on further from there, and you will come as far as the Oak of Tabor. And there three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a jug of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. Afterward, you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. And it shall be as soon as you have come up there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and a lyre before them. And they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. It shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you and offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all those signs came about on that day. When they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. It came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man there said, Now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Now Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To look for the donkeys. When we saw that they could not be found, we went to Samuel. Samuel's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but he did not tell them about the matter of the kingdom, which Samuel had mentioned. Thereafter, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. 
And he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God, who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said, No, but set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and your clans. Thus Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families, and the Matrite family was taken. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. When they looked for him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? Surely there was no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom, and wrote them in a book, and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his house. Saul also went to his house at Gibeah. And the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But certain worthless men said, How can this one deliver us? And they despised him. And they did not bring him any present, but he kept silent. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> now you can hear me. Let's pray. My Savior, help me. I am slow to learn, so prone to forget, so weak to climb. I am in the foothills when I should be on the heights. Make it our primary joy to study you, meditate on you. Give us increase and progress in your grace, so that there is more decision in our character, more vigor in our purposes, more elevation in our lives, and more consistency in our zeal. As we are in this world, keep us from being of the world. May we never seek in the creature what can only be found in the Creator. Be evident in us, our King, Lord of Lords, that we may live victoriously, and in victory gain eternity. Well, we remember last week that Saul went out on a donkey hunt, right? And it, it just so happened that Saul met with Samuel, and it just so happened that Samuel had been informed that uh, he would be meeting Saul the next day, and uh, he was to be the king of God's people. And there was a, a meal, and then an evening, and then Samuel wakes Saul up and says, get up, I'm going to walk you out. And they walk out to the edge of town, and, and Samuel says, send your servant on so I can speak to you privately. And that's where I cruelly left you last week. So today, let's look at what Paul Harvey used to call the rest of the story. I got two people there. In the first service, there's a lot more older people there, so that one, that one went over a little bit. Better. But first, for those of you who don't know, Paul Harvey was an old guy, so don't worry about it. Google it. But first, I'm going to give you a little illustration, okay? After being kicked out of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve said to the Lord, Lord, when we were in the Garden, you walked with us every day. Now we do not see you anymore. We are lonesome here, and it is difficult for us to remember how much you love us. And God said, I will create a companion for you that will be with you, and who will be a reflection of my love for you, so that you will love me even when you cannot see me. Regardless of how selfish or childish or unlovable you may be, this new companion will accept you as you are 
and will love you as I do in spite of yourselves. And God created a new animal to be a companion for Adam and Eve. And it was a good animal, and God was pleased. And the new animal was pleased to be with Adam and Eve, and he wagged his tail. <laughs> and Adam said, Lord, I have already named all the animals in the kingdom, and I cannot think of a name for this new animal. And God said, I have created this new animal to be a reflection of my love for you. His name will be a reflection of my own name. It will be Dog. <laughs> and Dog lived with Adam and Eve and was a companion to them and loved them. And they were comforted, and God was pleased, and Dog was content and wagged his tail. After a while, came to pass that an angel came to the Lord and said, Lord, Adam and Eve have been filled with pride. They struck and preen like peacocks, and they believe that they are worthy of adoration. Dog has indeed taught them that they are loved, but perhaps too well. And God said, I will create for them a companion who will be with them and who will see them as they are. The companion will remind them of their limitations, so they will know that they are not always worthy of adoration. God created Cat to be a companion to Adam and Eve. And Cat would not obey them. And when Adam and Eve gazed into Cat's eyes, they were reminded that they were not the supreme beings. And Adam and Eve learned humility. And they were greatly improved. And God was pleased. And Dog was happy. And the cat couldn't care less. Humility is a difficult trait to learn, especially when its evil twin pr uh, pride is easy to hang out with, right? Benjamin Franklin wrote this about pride in his autobiography. He said, in reality, there is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Disguise it, struggle with it, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases, it is still alive and will every now and then peep out and show itself. You will see it, perhaps often in this history. For even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. Humility is a difficult thing to obtain, and it's an even more difficult thing to maintain. And today, we're, we're going to look at, at a young man that started uh, very humbly. Right? If you remember last week when Samuel came to Saul and, and he said, uh, who is favored in all of Israel more than you? Remember Saul's humble response in chapter 9, verse 21. He said, am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of all the tribes of Israel? And my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? And while his humbleness was admirable, or admirable, I guess I should say, and something we should strive for, today we'll see where humbleness crosses the line from righteousness to sin. But first... Let's look at how chapter 10 starts. So I'm going to set you up here. We're going to go deep up. Nope, wrong way, sorry. There we go. Uh, we're going to look at verse 1 here. And we're going to see uh, Samuel accomplish three things throughout the beginning of the chapter here, right? First, uh, he's going to anoint Saul. And that's going to show Saul that God has chosen him. And then he's going to lay out a series of signs. And this is for Saul, so they're personal signs. They're, they're not signs that necessarily everybody would understand what meant, but Saul would, right? He, he's, he's coming in and he's saying, when you see these small signs happen, you will know this big sign will happen. And we saw this earlier with Eli, right? Remember when it was a negative way, right? When he cursed Eli, he said, you're going to, all these terrible things are going to happen to your family. Your whole family's going to get wiped out. And 
You're too old, so you won't see all of that. But this is how you will know it's going to happen. Both of your sons will die on the same day, right? He said, gave him the small sign to prove the big sign, right? So Samuel is is through the, the Lord through Samuel is going to lay out a series of signs to prove to Saul that he was chosen. And then what he's going to do is he's going to show Saul the proper position of a king, right? Because God is still king. Amen? Amen. God is still king. And, and, and although they have a king, he is subservient to the king. Right? And so the king will speak through his prophet to little king. Right? And, and through that, that's how he will rule. So we're going to see the, the proper position of the king through the God's prophet. So starting in verse 1 there, we see, Then Samuel took the flask of oil, and he poured it on his head, and he kissed him. And he says that he's been anointed ruler over his inheritance, meaning God's inheritance, right? And that that brings us back to last week when God was saying, my people, my people, my people, that repetition, right? God cares about his people. So the Lord anoints a ruler over his inheritance. And we see the the significance of this oil. He didn't just walk over to the the table at Olive Garden and grab some olive oil and dump it on his head, right? This this would be the the oil that's um, uh, described in Exodus, uh, it's called the anointing oil, right? And it was used in the temple, and they would they would sprinkle it on the the elements that are that were in there, the different tools that they used. They would sprinkle it on the temple, and they would actually pour it on the heads of the prophets, of the priests, right? So now we see this transition. It's going from the priests to the king, and it's really interesting. Uh, he gives a little recipe here. And so uh, David's got a little beard going on. We've got a few, few guys with some facial hair, right? We have beard oil, right? You put that beard oil on, it makes your beard feel soft and smooth. And it makes it smell good. And, and you see right here it says uh, we're going to take uh, myrrh and fragrant cinnamon and uh, fragrant cane and cassia. And they mix it all together and they make it into this anointing oil. Uh, myrrh has a smell of like a woody, uh, sharp smell to it. And the rest of those things, the fragrant cane and the cinnamon, they all have that cinnamony smell. So it would have been like a, a woody cinnamon smell that would have gone along with this oil, right? So he takes this and he pours it on Saul's head, anointing him as ruler over God's inheritance. So with the anointing complete, God through Samuel is going to move to prove to Saul that he did in fact choose Saul. So we see in verses 2 through 7, there's going to be Three signs to Saul to prove that he's choosing. The first one, he's going to be walking along, and two guys are going to walk up, and they say, hey, your dad's worried about you. He said, I, I, I don't care about the donkeys. Where's my son? Right? And that, that wouldn't be that amazing, except that Samuel is telling him this well before it happens. All right? And so they're just walking around Israel, and he's just going to bump into these two guys, and it will just so happen that they will say this. Then from there, they will go to the, or, the Oak of uh, Tabor, and they're going to find three men, one who's really jacked because he's carrying around three young goats, right? I don't, I don't know how you carry three goats, but he's doing it. Uh, one's carrying three loaves of bread, and the other, the wimpy guy's carrying the jug of wine, right? And they're going to give him two of those loaves of bread. There may be some significance to the fact that they gave them those two loaves of bread, but the Bible doesn't tell us what it is. So I, I don't want to sit here and say, well, three represents the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's going to give two. The Bible doesn't tell us, so I don't know why they give them the two loaves of bread. 
What I do know is that Saul is on his way to a high place to worship God, right? And if you go back and look at Numbers and you see uh, the description of the, the sacrifices, uh, there's a wave offering where they, they would actually hold up the sacrifice and wave it through the air, right? And one of those is bread. Right? So we see that God is preparing him. He's going to go worship God, and God is preparing him for that worship. Uh, from there, he will go along right to the hill where the Philistine garrison uh, is, right? So we remember the Philistines are enemies of Israel, and uh, right in front of the Philistines, God is going to do this miraculous work with the new king of Israel right under their noses, right? And the, the, the prophets are going to come down out the high place with a harp, a tambourine, a flute, and a lyre. Not a lyre, like a, a lying, a lyre. Like, I think that's what they play. I don't know. It's a musical instrument, right? They're going to have musical instruments. And they're going to come down, and uh, the spirit of the Lord is going to come on him mightily. And he's going to prophesy with him and become another man, changed into another man. And he says, it shall be when these signs come to, to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. So Saul has his three proofs, right? And like Gideon, Saul can now lay out his fleece and see God's will. He's going to see whether God really agrees with this. So he heads out uh, to the task given. But just before he goes, Samuel says, let me just explain something to you. This is how this relationship needs to work between God's prophet and the king, right? Verse 8, he says, you're going to go down to Gilgal, and I'll come down to you, and we're going to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace, peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. So the king is going to wait on God. Right? He's going to go down to Gilgal, and he's going to wait Seven days. Gilgal has both a, a history and a purpose for Saul, and in the future, it will even have a meaning for Saul. Right? In history, uh, Joshua 5, we learn that when the Israelites uh, came across the Jordan River, they, they, the water was stopped, and they walked through on dry land. Right? And as they walked through, they sent some guys back, and they picked up 12 boulders for each of the, the tribes of Israel. And they arranged those boulders and they put him in a circle there. And that is Gilgal. That's uh, literally in, in the Hebrew, uh, meaning circle of stones, right? And this is where God had rolled away the, the reproach of Egypt from them. Uh, in Israel's history, it was a joyous time. You remember they wandered the desert for 40 years. They'd been eating manna and pheasant for 40 years, right? So now they get to come and they get to, this is where they first ate of the fruit of the promised land. Right? This is where they first celebrated the Passover in the Promised Land. This is where Joshua met with the Lord before they went to attack Jericho. And, and God gave him the instructions on how he should attack Jericho. Now, in Israel's current time, it would be the place where Saul would learn how a king should be led by the prophet of God. So Saul has his marching orders. And we see what's going to happen. Verse uh, 9, let me get you there. Verse 9. There we go. Uh, when he turns his back to leave Samuel, God changes his heart, and all of the signs come true that day. And sure enough, he comes up to a hill where the, the Philistine uh, garrison is, and a group of prophets meet him. And the Spirit of God comes upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. One of the questions that I've bantered around in my head, and I get asked this sometimes, is do you think Saul was saved? 
do you think we'll see solid heaven? And the 100% true answer to that is no, I don't know. I think when I get up there, I'm going to be like, I'm going to be looking for some people, right? Nobody in here. But Saul, right? I'm going to be looking for Saul to see to see if he really got there. Because if you know anything about Saul, towards the end of his life, he was doing some pretty crazy stuff, right? He tried to murder David. He goes to a witch in Andor. Uh, it gets it gets complicated at the end. But people that 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 want, that want to say for sure he's saved come to this verse and they say, well, the Spirit of God came upon you mightily. I say yes, yes, it did. Uh, we see uh, when the Spirit of God came on on Samson, right? He was able to rip a lion apart with his bare hands. Right? I won't even try that with a, with a house cat. Right? He'd tear you up. <laughs> this guy could do it with a lion, right? But we also go to the New Testament and we look at when Jesus commissioned the twelve to go out in, in the beginning of his ministry there, and he, he commissioned the twelve to go out and he gave them power over the demons and power to perform miracles. Who was in that group? Judas Iscariot. So I can't look at this verse and say, well, because the Spirit of God came upon him, he was saved, because I don't think Judas Iscariot was saved. Right? But what we need to understand here is the Spirit of God came upon him in that moment. Right? In the Old Testament, we're blessed as New Testament believers. We have the Holy Spirit. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit within you. They didn't have that in the Old Testament, so the Spirit of God comes mightily on him. And it came about when all who knew him, right, they see him prophesying, and they see him, he says, hey, let me borrow that tambourine real quick. Ching, 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 ching. He's, he's singing along, and maybe he plays the lyre, I don't know. And, and the people around him know Saul, right? And he's kind of a quiet guy. He's, he's a humble guy. You know, he's probably not the guy that stands up in church and belts out the song, right? He, he's not that guy, but all of a sudden, here he is, with this group of prophets singing to the Lord, loudly, playing instruments. And they say, they look at him and they go, what has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And it actually, the Bible tells us it became a proverb, right? It was something you would say. When you saw something completely out of the norm, you would say, is Saul among the prophets? Right? And there was a man there that said, now who is their father? And that was... Probably meant as an insult. There's some, some differing opinions on exactly what that meant. It was probably like, was Kish really Saul's father? Uh, because usually the prophets would come from the Levitical tribe. But they said, is Saul also among the prophets? There was a radical change. Radical. And when he finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Now Saul's uncle's sitting there, right? And he sees Saul and he goes, where did you guys go? He said, we went to look for the donkeys. We couldn't find him, so we talked to Samuel. Now, think about this time, right? Think about what's going on right now. They all got together. They decided there was going to be a king. Samuel sent them home, so they know there's a king on the way, right? They, and they know that Samuel is going to be the one that introduces the king. So anytime somebody says, I talked to Samuel, whoop, the little radars went up, right? What did Samuel say? What did Samuel say, right? And we see this reaction from Saul here. He says, he, says, uh, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But he did tell them about the matter of the kingdom, which Samuel had mentioned. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us why. We don't have a verse 16 and a half that says Saul did this because, blah, 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 right? But we can, we can look at scripture to interpret scripture a little bit here. And we can look back and we remember that when Samuel anointed Saul, he didn't even want his servant there. 
He said, send your servant on. It was a very private thing. Right? And we'll see this when he does this with David as well. It's a very private thing. And so maybe that's why he didn't do it. But we don't know 100% why because the Bible doesn't say so. Thereafter, Samuel calls all the people together, right? We're at Mizpah. He says, come on back. Come on back. I've got your king for you. And he says, and thus says the Lord of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the power of all the kingdoms. I'm oppressing you. But today you've rejected your God. Now, I'm just here to tell you right now, this doesn't sound like a very motivational speech. Right? If we came to the business meeting tonight, I said, well, you know, I thought I was doing a good job as pastor, but now you want deacons, so fine, here you go. <laughs> It'd be very motivational, right? But he said, no, but set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. So they bring them out, they draw lots, right? We see this all throughout the Old Testament. Um, we even see it right up uh, into the New Testament when Judas was replaced, right? They drew lots to see who would replace Judas. Um, and they whittle it down all the way to Saul. And it, it had to have been a little comical. I'm sorry. But they say, Saul! Saul! And they actually have to go back and inquire to the Lord. Is he still coming? Where is this guy? You said he's going to be king. Where is he? <laughs> he wouldn't have been very hard to see. I pick on Brent all the time. I'm sorry, Brent. <laughs> Brent said you're six foot... Seven. Seven, right? And I did maths wrong in the first service there. So I said he was three inches taller than Brent. But he was probably about seven foot, so he was actually five inches taller than Brent. Right? This guy would not have been very difficult to find in a crowd. They can't find him. They inquire of the Lord, and he says, he's hiding in the baggage. So they go running over there. And I can't imagine, like, was he hiding behind the donkeys? I mean, this is a seven foot, think Shaq. Shaq is hiding from you. Where does Shaq hide? Right? He's huge. But they find him hiding and he stands up and, and remember, remember, in the last chapter, God said, give them what they want. Right? And they want a king to go in front of them in battle. They don't want some little shrimp. They want a big guy. I said in the first service, they, they, they want the biggest guy they can get because then all the arrows hit him before they hit them, right? They want a big guy. They want a muscle guy. Because in our eyes, that's what power is, right? Nobody, nobody says, oh, I, I don't want an M1A1 tank. I want something I can't see. Oh, I want to get in that tank, right? <laughs> so he gives them exactly what they want. They get Saul. And, and he, said, he writes out, he probably would have gone back to Deuteronomy there. He writes out what the king is supposed to do. Uh, he's not supposed to multiply horses. He's not supposed to multiply wives. Nobody sent that note to Solomon. Um, he's, he's supposed to, to trust in the Lord to fight his battles. Not the tanks, the Lord. Right? And they send them all home, and he sends them home with a, a military escort there, a valiant men whose hearts God had touched when he went with them. But then we get to verse 27. Just a little, little Verse 27, but certain worthless men, we've seen this before. Worthless men. Where did we see that before? Oh, yeah, Eli's sons. Remember? Worthless men, sons of Belial, right? And they say, how can this one deliver us? And they despised him, and they did not bring him any present, but kept silent. Now, to us, you know, if somebody doesn't bring you a present for your birthday party, you're like, ah, 
I would have liked a present, but I don't need a present, right? This was not that sort of thing. When, when you brought your gift to the king, it showed your alliance with the king. It showed your uh, subservience to the king. We read in Revelation that in the millennium, when Christ is ruling from Jerusalem, the nations will bring him presents, right, to show that they are, are serving him. And if they don't, they don't get any rain. No comment, right? If we don't honor God, he holds back the rain. They, and they, uh, they didn't bring me present. And it would have been very easy for Saul at this point, right, to, to really define his power. And that's what we do, right? Uh, you watch any Hollywood movie, and this is the point where the guy stands up, you know, execute them. But Saul doesn't do that. He starts off humbly, right? He doesn't say anything. He doesn't, he doesn't attack them. And we'll see later on, a little spoiler alert here, that Saul's going to do something really miraculous, and, and he's going to lead like he's supposed to. And then people that remember, there were guys that were saying this and, and didn't bring presents. They say, let's go murder them. They disrespected our king. And Saul says, whoa, 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 whoa. No Israelite's going to die today. Right? He starts off very humbly. So where did Saul's humbleness cross over from righteousness to sinfulness? I think the answer is pretty plain in the text. Samuel anointed Saul. Saul was given three proofs that God had chosen him. The Holy Spirit came upon him and he prophesied and he worshiped the Lord. And yet, when the time came, he was hiding in the baggage. God had prepared him. He met him where he was. He knew that he would have been nervous about this and he prepared him. He had proven without a shadow of a doubt that he was going to be used by Yahweh. But when the time came, and I like the King James Version of this verse, behold, he has hid himself among the stock. <laughs> you can surely understand that Saul must have felt the pressure of the office, right? The first king. This nation had never had a king before. They were all very independent, very nomadic. They, they didn't have one person in power. To be sure, this is a daunting task. But this cannot excuse his cowardice. We can sit here almost 3,000 years later, and we can laugh at the big man hiding with the stuff. But my friends, be careful. Because as Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. 3,000 years later, we stand in a very similar position to Saul. In fact, I would, say, I would venture to say that we stand in a better position than Saul. You want your proofs? Sure, I'll give you the proof. Genesis 3.15. Very beginning of the Bible, uh, God is speaking and he's talking to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head. That is a figure of speech for meaning kill you, and you will bruise him on the heel. You will hurt him. Did that come true? Yes. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Did that come true? Yes. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is just and endowed with salvation. And I think earlier in the service I mixed these around. Uh, I believe Zechariah 9.9 actually speaks about him coming on a donkey, on the colt of a donkey. 
And we remember that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to his crucifixion on a donkey. That came true. Isaiah 53, 4, 6. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Did that come true? Yes. Grace and peace to you, Galatians 1, 3 through 5. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Did that happen? Yes. And if you made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior this morning, the Holy Spirit has come upon you in an even better and more personal way than Saul. Romans 8.11 But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. We have our proofs. We have the Holy Spirit. And we have a high priest. Hebrews 8, 1 through 2. Now the main point of what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat. Uh, if you remember, uh, in the temple, the priest never sat. There weren't chairs in the temple. They were always doing something. But we get this picture here of a priest whose work is done, so he sits. He has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord has pitched, not man. We have our proofs. We have our high priest. And like Saul, we have our marching orders. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even the end of the age. We have our proofs. We have our high priest. We have our orders. And we have been called into a kingdom. We all haven't been called to be kings and queens. That would be awkward. Who would wash the dishes, right? But we have been called into a kingdom. Revelation 1, 5 through 6. Uh, this is John speaking to the churches. And he says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We've been given proofs. We have the Holy Spirit. We have our high priest. And we have his great commission. So the only question that remains is, are we hiding in the stuff? Are we serving the Lord with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul? Are we, like Paul, always reaching forward and forgetting what lies behind? Or is the grace that we have received from our great high priest chief grace? 
grace that prays a prayer or raises a hand but changes nothing about their daily life, changes nothing about how the world sees them. If you put them in a row of 100 people, you would see no difference other than I raise my hand once. Cheap grace. God forbid. May our grace be costly. A grace that, that takes us and grabs us and transforms us so that all around us say, is that person also among the prophets? A grace that, that urges forward in the serving of Almighty God till nothing is left, till we come apart and our bones crumble. May we serve the Lord with no fear, no timidity, no hiding in the stuff. Amen. One of the amazing things that we get to see as we travel through God's word book by book is we get to see the providential hand of God. Tonight, we're going to vote on, on the new deacons uh, to help lead this church, to push it forward and to do exactly what our high priest told us to do. And it may seem like this sermon was, was planned to support that, but I can honestly tell you, your preacher ain't that good. I, I couldn't arrange this to, to work it all out that way. This chapter just so happened to fall on the day of the business plan. It's almost like God knows what he's doing, right? <laughs> Because not only are we voting on men that have willingly stepped up to serve, we're also handing out a list of, of potential ministries, uh, opportunities in this church that we could have. Please don't mistake me. Uh, don't mistake this as, as guilting you into service. Because I'm being 100% brutally honest here. I would take one Holy Spirit-filled, fired-up saint for Jesus that's willing over 10 people that were there because the pastor made them feel good. But you have your proofs. You have your Holy Spirit. You have your high priest. And brothers and sisters, he has given us marching orders. Don't let your humility turn you away from serving Yahweh. He will equip you. you say, oh, I can't do that. There's no way I can do that. Nonsense. You think the God that created the heavens and the earth can't give you what you need to help you serve? Don't let your humility turn you away from serving the Lord. Will your humility overwhelm you and cause you to hide in stuff? Or will you rise with the power of the Holy Spirit to the challenge of serving Christ? Let's pray. We thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word, you have placed people in there that are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We thank you that, Lord, because we are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And so, Lord, we can look at these people and we can empathize with them and, and we can see where they fall and where they fail and we can learn from that, Lord. And like Paul said, it, it, the, the, the scriptures were written to give us hope. Hope that a knucklehead like me could serve the Almighty God. Lord, we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that, that, that you would encourage us, that if we uh, uh, feel called to, to serve you, Lord, to, uh, in, in anything, in anything, Lord, cleaning the bathrooms, leading a ministry, leading a Bible study, what the kids, Lord, if, if we feel called, Lord, we pray that we would overcome our timidity, 
that we would overcome our fears and that our service to you, Lord, would be with our whole heart, not holding back, Lord, not half set, but serving with our whole heart. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving us this opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray.